You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey everyone, Matt from Occupier here. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the Fully Occupied Podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe on your favorite listening platform or just shoot us a note at marketing at occupier.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on future guests, topics you'd like to hear about, ask us any questions you have, or just say hi. Enjoy the show. All right, cool. We're being joined by Adam Ifshin from DLC Management. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to a little, little chat about retail. Yeah, no worries. We're coming. Uh, we're coming off the high of ICSE Recon, so our whole team is jacked up to talk about retail real estate, and we're we're happy to have you join us. It's nice to be able to talk about a, uh, an industry back in the ascendancy. I've been in this business so long that um, sometimes you you know there. I have a whole generation of people who work for me who've never been in the environment we're in right now on the landlord side. So um, we're having a, uh, shall we say, a re-education process. Uh, but it's, it, it's, a good, it's actually a really good time to talk about retail, and it's a really good time to talk about um, the state of how retailers are doing in physical presence retailing because so much has gone on. And I think you know, COVID represents such an extraordinary uh, unexpected set of outcomes, particularly for the retail industry, for both, uh, you know, what are both your clients and mine, that I think it's really an opportune time to talk about it. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm a longtime entrepreneur. I started my first business when I was 19 in my dorm room at Williams College. Sold that business, I was a contractor, sold that business when I was 21. Uh, went to work in the residential development business, didn't like it very much. Uh, in 1990, started doing workouts, and in 1991, started DLC, and we've historically been an owner, acquirer, owner, redeveloper of pre-existing, existing open-air retail shopping centers across the country. Generally, the first 10 years of my career, I bought distressed, I bought bankruptcy positions, I bought notes and mortgages, I bought distressed retail REO from people like the government and various lenders. Uh, and then that morphed into a um, classic sort of private owner operator syndicator model. And then uh, following the general, uh, the global financial crisis, you know, 2008, nine through 2011, 12, toyed with going public, called it off in the very, very 11th hour, famously at the San Francisco airport, um, when I didn't like the price and then my bankers didn't like me. Uh, and from there, uh, they were like, you got a big problem, kid. And I was like, I don't think I have as big a problem as you think I have. Uh, and then in the succeeding six years, my partners and I doubled the size of the business uh, to roughly what it is today, which is about uh, 75, 80 assets, eastern half of the United States, offices in places like Dallas, Atlanta, Chicago, and D.C., in addition to New York City, where we're headquartered. Um, and then uh, portfolio today is roughly 3,000 tenants in about two and a half billion dollars worth of real estate with about a $400 million acquisition pipeline at the moment, which should close beginning of the third quarter. And we've, we've sort of become known as one of the larger private owner operators, not interested in babysitting retail real estate, but in adding value to retail real estate is sort of the way I describe it. And we're coming up on close to $5 billion in total transactions in my career. 
which is just another way of me saying I'm old. <laughs> well, you, you had to start somewhere. So, I mean, I'm assuming that if you started your first business at 19 when you, you were in your dorm room at Williams College, you quickly realized that your liberal arts education um, wasn't going to fare you too well in the business world. And it was time to cut your teeth that way. Like, how, what was it like starting a business like in college and subsequently, you know, growing something to such a large scale? So it's, it's kind of interesting. I actually, um, I'm a huge believer in the fact that for certain types of people, a liberal arts education is an extraordinary thing to have as an entrepreneur. Uh, it enables you to be much less bound, less, much less siloed into ways of thinking. Since I never took an accounting class, I had no preconceived notions about how to finance something. Uh, since I had never taken a class in or you know in organizational behavior I did not believe in conventional org charts and there while there are certainly risks to that I actually think that the things that elite liberal arts institutions when they're having a good day do which is they teach people to think they teach people to speak publicly and they teach people to write those are three really underappreciated and really important skills for entrepreneurs to have so um, while I have become a large recruiter at undergraduate business schools, um, we still find a lot of top, top talent at, at liberal arts schools. Uh, at the moment, there are more people on Team DLC who were camels at, Connecticut, at Connecticut College than any other uh, school or university, college or university in America. So I guess we've put our money where our mouth is in that regard. So it, it, I don't think you have to go to business school to run a business. I really don't. And I never went and got an MBA, although I certainly could have. Um, I, did, I did apply and get into one of the top three business schools in America and deferred and deferred and deferred until they called me up and said, you know, it really doesn't count anymore. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm really not going to go anyway. So <laughs> moved on. Yes. Same here. I didn't... I didn't uh do the business school route either, but somehow found a way to start a business and we're successful so far. So, um, but let's go back to, uh, let's, let's hit the main topic here, retail real estate. So you mentioned COVID provided this just completely out of nowhere, unprecedented, whatever word you want to use, opportunity situation um, in this space. And now a lot of people are being re-educated as to what retail real estate is. So you have 3,000 tenants across your portfolio, like what happened to them? Bring us back to March 2020. So the, the answer is with that many tenants, something happened to all of them. I mean, every, every passe, cliched outcome you could hear about, right? The, the tenant who should have gone out of business somehow or another made it, and the tenant who should have made it somehow or another went out of business. And I think to our point before about entrepreneurship, amongst local tenants, a lot of it had to do, didn't have to do with their financial wherewithal, had a lot to do with their entrepreneurial spirit, their grit, their unwillingness to fail and their work ethic. So outcomes were very hard to preordain. You could have two tenants in exactly the same business. You would say, hey, that business is really well positioned and one would make it and one wouldn't. Uh, and you could have two tenants in a business where you say, hey, that, that business is gonna be DOA, it's all going online, yada, 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 and they both made it, even though in your personal opinion, one or both of them might not have been great entrepreneurs or great retailers. Uh, so what happened? Well, first of all, I mean, a number of things happen. One, one of the things is, for better or worse, and we complain a lot in this country about what the government does and government's involvement in business, I think there's no question looking back on it that for all of its challenges, problems, it wasn't perfect. I'm sure some people took advantage. 
Um, the combination of EIDL loans from the SBA and PPP loans uh, saved the day for many small and mid-sized businesses in America. There's no question. I think the role of the Fed for the larger tenants in creating immense liquidity helped many of our larger tenants. I mean, if you had told me that LA Fitness, a company I know really well, we've built eight gyms for them, and I think we consider them a strategic client, and they consider us a strategic landlord of theirs, you know, they privately tapped everything. Yes, they have the largest SBA loan in the history of, of the world in a certain program, but they also tapped the private markets very, very competitively, and they came out the other side very well financed. So one of the things, I think one of the big takeaways across it is the financial health of retailers who survived is dramatically better than the universe of retailers pre-COVID. Watch lists of tenants who are going to file for bankruptcy essentially fell to nothing. In 2022, we have had one bankruptcy of a retail chain with more than 50 retail stores in America, and they closed five stores. If people don't recall, in January and February, first Q1 2019, there were probably something approaching 8,000 store closures resulting from bankruptcy. That, that's crazy. We had five. So it's a totally different world. And they're healthier. Their balance sheets are better. And by the way, they're better at their business. They're much better at their business. It kind of makes you wonder what they were doing before, right? Well, when there's no margin for error, and, there, and you can also throw all the rules out. I mean, one of the things about COVID was, it was a great time to be an entrepreneur, right? And you could be an entrepreneur running a Fortune 500 business because the risk of failure went to zero. Right. If everyone assumes you're going to fail and you survive, well, guess what? You can go try whatever you want. And I think a lot of, I mean, take Macy's. You look at Macy's. They refinanced their entire balance sheet. They expanded their liquidity by over a billion and a half net dollars. They canceled an entire six-month run of product, had to build it back. And they figured out how to sell $7.5 billion a year online with all of it fulfilled from the stores. I mean, the learnings and the willingness to take risks. I mean, oh, and by the way, they did all that. Their CFO quit like the first week of COVID. They had no CFO. I mean, it seems like one of those things that they were able to pull that off and they could have done that without a pandemic if they just decided, hey, let's try this, right? But because there were expected ways of doing things, is that is that why they stay the course to, to the to the business model that is just the industry standard? I think Or does it take a pandemic or a black swan event for people to start thinking differently? I think that's the answer. To me anyway, that's more the answer. People were willing to try things that they simply were not willing to try before. Um yeah. Activist investors in retail essentially evaporated. They're back now to some degree, but they largely evaporated, right? So everyone got a pass. People weren't looking to make a return in 30, 60, 90 days. And look, there was also a lot of turnover in those C-suites, right? And I think a lot of people who were close to the end said, hey, you know, what am I going to do? Stick around for this? And guess what? It opened the door for a new, younger generation of, of leaders to come in and really, you know, they were untethered to prior, quote unquote, you know, strategic initiatives that they might have been stuck with because they told the street they were going to do it, even though they really weren't well positioned to pull it off. So I think that that's a big yeah. part of it, you know. And look, it's 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 come back to help our industry. It's still paying dividends. First of all, dividend, you know, demand came back dramatically. The limits and the true cost of e-commerce came to the fore, right? The cost of customer acquisition, the cost of shipping, 
and the cost of returns have now become this massive three boulder weight dragging down pure play e-commerce. And there's only one way yeah. to solve it, which is to open stores. You're spot on, but then those three boulders get heavier when uh, global events start messing with the supply chain and you think you're gonna get your supplies and your goods from overseas and then you can't you know, deliver on your, your deliveries. And so you could paint yourself in a corner if you go too heavy on the e-commerce side, not only financially, but with, with the, the loyalty and, and of your customers, right? So where do you kind of strike the balance between, I mean, do you have to figure that out the hard way and then start opening stores again? Or what, what are the brands that kind of figured this out maybe even before and we're, we're starting to go the omni-channel route in having the brick-and-mortar presence continue to grow. Here's the way I describe it to people. Being a pure play DTC e-commerce player, it's like being a drug addict. So here's why. You can scale from zero to anywhere between 10 and maybe 40, 50 million dollars on the outside as a pure play e-commerce player. And in that growth period from wherever break-even is, let's say break-even is 10 million dollars, right? You're a small business, you get to $10 million, start to make money. And when you go from 10 million to 30 million, your margins expand and you're making more money. You've got a nice business. The problem is after that, now you're addicted and you can't get off it. And the problem is those three things I mentioned, the bigger you get, they don't, it's not like they become less of a problem. You put a hundred pound anchor on the Titanic, it's not gonna stop it, right? But here, those things get bigger and bigger and bigger because the incremental customer costs so much more in customer acquisition costs to land. If you lose money when you ship something and you lose more money if the, if the customer ships it back and you lose yet again more money because the return, you happen to be selling something DTC where the return is worthless and you have to pay to get rid of it at the end of the chain, the more you sell, the more you lose. And you don't grow out of it. The reverse happens. You become more addicted and more addicted. If you look at the effectiveness of customer acquisition capture and SEO, there's a sweet spot, but it's at a very small size. And after that, the cost to get that next incremental $10 million of revenue and new customers grows exponentially every $10 million. And you're really behind the eight ball. And the only solution at the end of the day is to get the return rate down. That means stores. Right. So then you got to start comparing the cost of building out a fleet of stores to those online versions of customer acquisition. And how does, how does one do that? Obviously, if you're pure DTC going to brick and mortar, you got a lot to learn. But I would imagine that that's when they bring in somebody that knows how to roll out a retail expansion. Right. The issue there, though, is your balance sheet and your realities collide with that very, very quickly. I think in the next, you know, not even 10 years, but one to four years, you were going to see immense consolidation in the DTC space because if you don't have immense liquidity, making that conversion midstream is you're not going to survive it, right? You probably still have to be private because if you're public, you're just going to get abused. And I think, it's very hard to have the kind of liquidity you would need to have remaining private to make that transfer in the middle. I think ultimately, first of all, I mean, it's been a very long time since I've heard of a major VC backing at growth stage, a pure play e-commerce retailer. So I think that one of the things is there are just aren't going to be that many of them because the 
traditional funders of that have dried up. But it's really hard to make that conversion. I mean, the person, the, the company that's the furthest along in making that conversion is Warby, and they are far away ahead of everybody else. I mean, they have hundreds of stores open. They've just announced in the last 90 days they're going to go to 900 stores. They're still struggling to make money, and they're further along than anybody else. And, you know, as I was taught when I was young in the retail real estate business, there's a reason why there were eyeglass stores in, in shopping malls, which is because the profit margins were absurd. And they, so here they are in this business with great profit margins. And even they're struggling. If you're in a DTC business with a, a profit margin that's a third to a half of Warby's and you try to make that transition, I mean, that, that road sounds kind of dicey. Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen next in this so like how, how far are we through the correction in terms of retail post-covid like you've mentioned the, the companies that short up their balance sheets like the la fitnesses of the world are in prime position but i, I gotta imagine a lot of them are going to still continue to struggle or have already kind of vacated their stores what happens are we is there a whole new wave of retailers coming out like what's the What's the next two to five years look like? Every retailer who's alive has an open to buy to open stores, without exception, because all the margin in retailing is in the store. It's the secret that's staring you in the face when you pull into an open air shopping center. And I think it's important to make the distinction map between open air and all retail. All retail is not the mm -hmm. same. Retail is effectively trifurcated into three sub asset classes, open air, malls, and urban. Every single lead tenant in open air has an open to buy to open more stores. Walmart, who had not been aggressively reopening stores, is reopening stores, is opening new stores. Target, in mid to late 21, tripled their store opening target for 2023 and 2024. Tripled. Massive open to buys at Ross, Burlington, all of the TJ Maxx concepts. Um, the grocers are all back either opening stores or investing in existing stores. And the, the company opening the most new grocery stores in America is Amazon. I do not think that's some oddball coincidence. I think that's very intentional. Say whatever you want about the crew at Amazon. They're not stupid. They're smart, right? And if they're pouring money into opening stores, there's got to be a reason behind it. Yet they've closed all their non-grocery stores. Very interesting. Obviously, the dollar stores, five below, thinks they can double their store count. Uh, you know, we're doing deals now with all of the tenants I mentioned, Ulta, Old Navy, Dick's, Ross. I mean, there's virtually nobody in the open air space who is not looking to open more stores because stores mean margin and they are highly efficient and the customer wants to be back in a store and they have figured out how to make the store a much more convenient part of the e-commerce process as well a critical part of the e-commerce process. I mean, look at, you look at Sephora, and I think this is really interesting, right? So Sephora, of course, has had their own stores and they had their relationship with JCPenney. Uh, and a lot of us for years scratched our heads at the JCPenney relationship. We sort of didn't really understand it, shame on us. And of course they are owned by LVMH, right? There is no greater luxury manufacturer, brand manager, and retailer than LVMH, right? I mean, they own, Everything from Louis Vuitton to Dom Perignon. But they went and made a deal with Kohl's. I think a lot of people go, well, I don't make a deal with Kohl's. Now, we knew they had to get out of their JCPenney deal because there was a real risk JCPenney wasn't going to exist. But you know what? Go in and look at what they've done in the Kohl's. 
Because what it does is it drives traffic to calls. And it drives traffic to their customer. And it has been incredibly successful. Kohl's told us last week in the convention that by the end of this year, they will have transformed, I think it's close to 850 stores to include Sephora. I think that, that tells you all you need to know. I mean, most women who go into Sephora know what they're getting. You could order it online. It's not that hard. Yeah, if you want to change color, you want to change shade, you want to change manufacturer, sure. But you know what? It's very, very efficient to go to that Kohl's and get what you need if you're going out Friday or Saturday night. Very, very efficient. And it's very hard to beat that, right? And there are a bazillion SKUs in that space, right? There are a billion SKUs in that space. And it, it's unbelievable how much more efficient it is, both the manufacturer and seemingly more gratifying for the customer. And I think that's the sweet spot, right? When those two line up. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Although I'm having difficulty squaring it with the the massive market sell-off of last week, right? So I think Walmart was down 17%, Target was down 24%, Costco was down 34%. Is that a broader market uh, a picture of, of the stock market? Or was there a specific reason why those stocks tanked? So coming out of COVID, behind the big boy tech stocks, the FANG stocks plus whatever, another 10 or 20 stocks, no sector had seen more price appreciation in their stocks than retail. Even in the face of COVID, supply chain, shipping costs, et cetera. So part of that, I think, is market overdue for a correction. The more liquidity you have in any given week, even as a liberal arts guy, if you put too much liquidity in a market, you are going to create right, violent volatility when the volatility shows up. So you saw a classic low vol, you know, hard grind higher for months, if not over a year, right? Essentially from like when we reopened last, you know, whatever, spring of 21, quote unquote. And I think it was long overdue, quite candidly. Now, I also think it was way overdone. As someone from Target said to me, what was so bad about my last quarter? I did a positive three comp in sales. I did plus four in traffic. She goes, that positive comp plus three off of a positive comp of like 26 the year before. My three-year stack in a mature business is between nine and 10 per year compounded. You see, I was growing at one to two, two to three before this. I'm growing at three, four X when I was growing. So what's so bad about that? I said, everybody knew, she said, everybody knew the comps were gonna be impossible to stack up against. She goes, traffic was up 4%. Said in 2016, 17, 2018, when we were when we were investing eight billion dollars in the stores and everyone thought we were crazy, right? We're getting we weren't getting four percent traffic. We're getting four percent traffic growth, and everyone goes, "Well, then why were the numbers not so good?" Well, you know, the basket's going to shrink a little because everybody has an entire walk-in closet full of paper goods, right? And you know, don't don't let anybody know if you have too much baby formula, right? Because someone will come knock your house off. But um, <laughs> But no, just you know, all kidding aside. So then speaking of, speaking of senior person at Walmart, he goes, yeah, he goes, we missed by a hundred, we're a $500 billion business. We missed quarterly EBITDA by $122 million. He says, let me tell you what happened. He goes, the CDC changed its guidelines on how long you were supposed to quarantine when you had COVID. COVID and like everybody else, we need as much staff as we can get in the stores because we're doing so much business. He goes, so 
All these people who we expected would be out, because we have a model that says we're going to miss X number of people for 10 days, because that's how long they had to sit on the sidelines. Now you cut the sideline period right from 10 to, two, to 5. He goes, the $122 million is all extra labor costs, because people didn't have to quarantine as long. There's no miss here. I think that's really, really important to understand. I think that the, mar the market overreacted. And that's okay, because that's what the market does. But I think in the long run, you know, unless somebody's on watch list, we don't pay a lot of attention to retail or stock prices. We pay a lot of attention to the fundamentals of their performance, comps, inventory terms, you know, shipping is a percentage of sales. I mean, we look at the, at the details and we look at balance sheets. And when you look at retailer balance sheets collectively in the open air space, they are better than they have been in the 30 years I've been doing what I'm doing. Cool. Let's talk about your portfolio for a second. You, you said you had $400 million acquisition pipeline. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So what are, you, what are you looking for and, and how is the nature of your portfolio changing, if at all, right now? So I think you know, for, for us, our focus over the last decade has been to focus on larger assets with multiple anchors. Uh, one of our big learnings from the global financial crisis was that you know, if you have a single, asset, a single anchor asset, i.e. grocery and some shops, it can be really, really stable. But if something happens to that grocer, like they got bought by private equity, get levered up with debt and there's a recession and they end up in bankruptcy, you've got a big problem. And sometimes it's impossible to recover from that problem, even though it may not be the fault of that location. So our focus has been, and our pipeline continues to be well-located, multi-anchored, uh, high-traffic, reasonable-cost open-air. And as a result, we benefit from a variety, a confluence of factors. We are the low-cost provider of the last mile in most major metros. We get to do business with the best value-oriented retailers in America, which, you know what? When the economy's super hot, people still go to Target and Walmart. And when the market's not so great, they not only come back to Walmart and Target, but they go to Dollar General, and they go to Dollar Tree, and they go to TJ Maxx, and they go to Marshalls. If you find, you know, Lulu in a DLC asset, then somebody stole the name of my company. Um, we're, not, we're not an upscale player. We're not a high-end player. So I think that that's a big part of, you know, you'll see occupancy growing. You'll see a lot of construction. Construction of three forms. Uh, we're reinvesting in the assets. So that means new facades, new sidewalks, new parking lots, new roofs. We're putting new tenants in possession. We've retenanted in the last seven years, we've retenanted 108 anchor boxes in assets wow. we've bought. And those have largely been done with the, 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 the names I've mentioned. And then the last thing we're investing in is, in is in ESG. So we are rolling out a transformation of as many roofs as we can get material for to go solar in those states where it makes financial and economic sense. We are adding solar. Uh, so that that power will be generated on site, used first to serve this, the, the electric needs of the tenants in that property, and then to the extent there's an excess sold into the grid. Uh, can't do it everywhere because the economics don't work everywhere. Uh, we're about 60% of the way through putting LED lighting in every center where it makes economic sense. So really three forms, and there's not a lot of new construction, which is also, I think, a long-term positive for our industry, uh, because there's really been no new supply in any material scope since the global financial crisis, and there isn't going to be any now. One of the positive, perverse 
outcomes of COVID and the supply chain is construction costs have gone up a multiple of the rate of inflation. So it's now become uneconomic to build new. So retrofits, are, which is what DLC has always excelled at and specialized in, have, are even more in vogue. So I think that's what you'll, you'll see in our assets. And you'll see the coming soon signs look like a who's who of American retail, right? It's, it's Old Navy, it's Ulta, it's Bath & Body Works, Chipotle, Panera, Star, doing a ton of business with Starbucks, doing a ton of business with a variety of the QSR tenants and some of the healthier options in that space as they become more affordable. So there's a lot of activity, but at the end of the day, Matt, it's a bread and butter business. You know, we're not adding a hundred million dollar experiential attraction to the roof of some mall somewhere. That's not our business. Yep. You know, building an arena in a uh, multi-use downtown urban area, it's your bread and butter standard suburban open air shopping center. Exactly. We do actually have one center in Allen, Texas that has an arena in it. Uh, but we bought this center that was built around the arena. We didn't build the arena, but we do have one. Cool. All right, this, is, this has been awesome. Let's, uh, let's head to our rapid-fire questions here. Uh, I'm going to give you a minute to answer each one. Uh, you can interpret them however you'd like. Uh, I know we had some pre-recording conversations about how you should answer these, but I'm going to let you figure that out along the way. And number one question is, what is your favorite TV show to binge watch? So, uh, I don't watch a lot of TV, so this is actually a really hard question for me. I can tell. Um, I... <laughs> I was forced to watch a little more TV at the height of COVID. And what I'll tell you is, if people haven't watched a Netflix, it may not have been Netflix, there was an on-demand five-part show called Orthodox. I would go watch Orthodox. I will also admit that I've been married to the same wonderful woman for 30 years. And when she became a binge watcher of Downton Abbey, I became a binge watcher of Downton Abbey. Okay, there you go. Question two. If you could invite three celebrities to a dinner party, who would they be? So again, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a big follower of celebrity, but... Celebrity is a, a catch-all catch term for anybody famous. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you two very different ones. One for current events today and one that I had a greater appreciation of during COVID. Um, I found myself listening during COVID to this podcast called Renegades, which were these conversations oh, yeah. between Barack Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. I would have liked to have been the third guy in the room a lot. I found those conversations so fascinating. And I, I was not a huge, not a huge fan of Obama, and I've been a huge fan of Springsteen since I was a kid. Uh, the way in which Obama got Springsteen to be the interviewer at certain points in time, in and of itself, was I would have loved to have been in the room. For current events, though, I would tell you that um, I would love to be able to sit down and have a long conversation with three people about what's going on in the world right now. Um, and two of them are long dead, uh, and one of them is an author who is alive. So um, I'm fascinated by trying to understand why it is that Europe, Europe's ability to destroy, to tear the world apart by waging war on itself is, you know, I thought this was in the rearview mirror as a historian, I turned out to be wrong. So if I could sit down with, obviously, Sir Winston Churchill, who foresaw much of this, the last person to make a durable peace in Europe was, um, was Prince Metternich of Austria after the Napoleonic Wars. And the third person is, um, there's an author here in the United States who's written about autocracy and a variety of things by the name of Todd Snyder. 
and he's written a book called The Bloodlands about um, why in certain parts of Europe, Europeans seem to be obsessed with killing each other. And I think the situation in Ukraine is an extraordinary travesty of epic proportions. I also think in some way, shape, or form, it's beholden on the world to practice better statecraft to help try and minimize or prevent things like that from happening. So I'd like to sit with the three of them because I think the amateur historian that I am and the writings that I've read of all three suggest that perhaps those three, if they were put in a room together, might have a better solution than the one that eludes the rest of the world today. Yeah. Well, hopefully you guys will figure it out <laughs> at the moment. Nobody else is. Right. <laughs> Um, lightning, lightening up a little bit here. What what was your first car? Uh, my first car was a Datsun B210. No air conditioning, no radio. Was that like that like brown color? It was. I did not have the brown one, but I know the color you're talking about. Datsun, for those of you who don't know, was the precursor to Nissan. It's the same corporate entity. And they had a terrible scandal in Japan and had to change the name of the brand, I don't know, 30 years ago. No, it was the, it was literally like, I think the cheapest car, this was pre Hyundai, you know, this was like the cheapest car you could get that got like road certified in the United States. <laughs> All right. Next question. What's your favorite meal? Uh, I have, um, regrettably given the size that I am, I have too many favorite meals. Um, <laughs> I, I would have to say though, that, um, uh, a restaurateur, family business restaurateur in Milan, uh, who I've come to know by going in his restaurant makes the greatest veal milanese on earth uh, in a restaurant called Trattoria Our Latte in, uh, in Milan. So that would be my favorite thing. Yeah, you can't go wrong with a, a good plate of veal milanese. We could probably do an entire podcast episode on this next question, which, hey, maybe we should. Um, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out their career in commercial real estate? Um, I think... So the advice is, is, is very simply twofold, is even if you only intend to be an investor in the long run and you want to be a, you know, some large institutional investment manager, go to work for an operator, really learn the business and, and go to work for an operator who may not necessarily be in the sexiest product type, may not be uh, the biggest payer, but go to, go to someone who's going to actually teach you skills and give you the opportunity to practice them in real time. If you get to do that, much like you did, Matt, in sales, I think that's even better, but it doesn't have to be. I think you got to, being at an operator and understanding how the assets really work and getting to really work on an asset, uh, whether it's in sales, property management, project management, you know, marketing, um, I, I get it. The closer you get to the real estate, the more you'll learn faster. Yep. Yep. You understand the whole stack of things that need to happen and owning, <clears throat> managing, disposing of real estate. That's good advice. Um, actually, one more question before we sign off. Name two people we should have on the show next. Two people you should have on the show. I think that you should have somebody from a retailer in the space that I'm in and that you could have any number of people. But I think having an open-air retailer on to talk about buy online, pick up in store, in store fulfillment. Um, so people I would recommend would include JP Suarez at Walmart, Todd Littler at Dollar Tree, although they don't really have, they're, they're not in e-commerce, for the e-commerce part, the, the in store fulfillment part. Um, I would, 
I would think that, you know, if, if someone from Walmart would talk to you, whether it's JP or somebody else, I think that would be tremendous. Um, I think you should try and have somebody on in the, in the QSR space. Tabasum, who is the chief global chief development officer for Chipotle comes to mind. They're doing extraordinary things with data. Chipotle for sure, but I mean, I think a host of QSR-oriented retailers are doing extraordinary things with data from everything from menu design to store design to do I need a drive-through in every location or not? Um, and I think that the, those tenants in that space are very much overlooked, but I think how they're using technology and data, you know, I mean, and, and by the way, I mean, talk about perseverance. I mean, Chipotle only tried to launch an app four times. Just so happened the fourth time was like the end of the March of 2020 in COVID and it worked. Um, Boom. <laughs> so, I mean, something to be said that, that I don't know who the right person, i be honest with you, I don't know who the right person at Chipotle to talk to is about that, but I think the coming together of that during COVID would be a fascinating story for them. Cool. Well, Adam, thanks so much. It's been great. Um, if our listeners wanted to uh, find you or DLC, how would they do that? Uh, so you find uh, DLC at, uh, at DLCMGMT.com, our website. You find us at, at DLCMGMT on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. I am at DLCCEO on Twitter, and I am at DLC underscore CEO on Instagram. Awesome. Well, thanks, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Maybe we should do it again sometime. I appreciate it, Matt. Good luck with your business. All right. I hear it's going great. Look forward to seeing more success out of you guys at Occupier. I appreciate it. Take care.